to be back after a a short preaching uh, hiatus of three weeks. I couldn't do that without uh, my wonderful ministry partners, um, Mike Bongo and Pastor Ben, who uh, just helped me with the weekly preaching responsibilities. And uh, it's a joy to, to work with them and the balance of our staff. It's been great to spend time just with people who deeply love uh, Jesus and deeply love each other and deeply love you all. And uh, so uh, I'm glad to be back. And this morning, uh, I want to talk to you uh, about one of the most valuable possessions that each of us have. And uh, it's not a house, uh, it's not a car, it's not a designer wardrobe, not the latest smartphone, not even a great education. It's something that's that's not really uh, a, a tangible thing that you can hold in your hands. Instead, it's something that's actually in our minds, and it's called uh, memories. And uh, there's two kinds of memories that people have. You typically got really wonderful memories, or you typically got really bad memories. There's not really a whole lot of memories that are just kind of in between. We don't seem to be holding on to those kind of neutral things. And when it comes to wonderful memories, they're typically of special times uh, in special places with special people. And and there are things that bring a smile to our face and, uh, you know, maybe some laughter uh, in our belly and joyful tears sometimes in our eyes. You know, we think about, you know, special birthdays that are, are typically all before, uh, you know, before 30. After 30, things get a little uh, not so celebratory anymore. Uh, graduations, whether that be from high school or kindergarten, uh, from the Marine Corps or from college, perhaps medical school. Uh, you know, if any of you have ever failed a driver's test, you know that passing the driver's test is like a really wonderful memory. Uh, first dates, uh, weddings perhaps, uh, births of children, uh, special times with good friends, long-awaited vacations. Those are all like those kind of special, wonderful memories that we have. But then there's those not-so-wonderful memories that we have that are of, of difficult times, And a lot of times in difficult places with many times difficult people. And uh, those are the kind of memories that make our hearts heavy. They make our spirits groan. Uh, It could be the loss of a loved one, uh, the death of a dream. It could be uh, a a broken relationship. It could be a, a disappointment or failure. Perhaps you worked and worked and worked and worked hard for something and and then at the very end, when you, you think you're going to reap the, the benefits of, of all your hard work, you, you fail at that and it's a complete catastrophe. Or, or maybe it's just a horrible choice that you or I have made that comes with unintended and unimaginable consequences. And as I was kind of thinking about the, the message and thinking about these, these, these memories, I, some of the things came to my mind of what, what are the, the memories that really stick out in my mind. And uh, mainly, they, they involve my family. Uh, you know, one of my greatest memories was that, that day in the spring of, of 1980, uh, it would have been 1983, in the spring of 83, when I, I walked through the, the doors of First Federal Savings Loan to do some work for my dad for a week. And, and though uh, there in front of me was a vision of beauty, there was Kathy, the first time I had ever seen her. I was like, you know, Adam, the first time that he got to see Eve, like, wow, this is awesome. Can't wait to come back to work, Dad. This is going to be great. Uh, I think about the, the, the burrs of my, uh, my kids. Uh, I can remember 
uh, you know, Kathy telling me that I was going to have to be in the delivery room with Mike. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I'm going to pass out if I'm in here doing this. And she's like, nope, you got to be there. And I can remember how beautiful that was with, with Mike and how, how special that was and how controlled everything was. And then, uh, you know, I remember John's birth. And John's birth was like Kathy in the shower at like four in the morning. And I'm like, why are you in the shower at four in the morning? Well, I'm having contractions. Well, how far are your contractions apart? Oh, they're about four minutes apart. I'm like, they're four minutes apart. We've got to get out of here. And rushing down Route 81 into the polyclinic hospital and barely making it into uh, the delivery room. The doctor just not even putting on a gown, just throwing on some gloves. And next thing you know, John's in the world and they're whisking him away because there's some issues with him. And I'm thinking like, little did I know that this chaos of this delivery was going to basically define the entirety of John's life. I mean, that's how he's lived, you know? Uh, you know, and I've talked before about, uh, you know, Nicole and adoption and how incredible that was and just those wonderful things. And, and, and then, you know, as far as the church family's involved, and I vividly remember that, that day in January 21st, 2001, in the midst of all of that snow, when, when 96 people came to Living Waters First Service. Those are just wonderful memories. And then there's those difficult ones, and, and, and we all have those. I mean, some of my most difficult ones I can, can remember, and I probably have talked about this before, in, in the spring of, of 94, when, when my grandmother Leonzo unexpectedly passed away in her sleep, and getting that call in the middle of the night from, you know, that, that phone call is always bad when it rings in the middle of the night. And, uh, you know, my dad saying my grandma had passed away. And then within three months, my, my, her, her husband, my grandfather, Leonzo, passing away. Those were just, they were hard times for me. And, uh, you know, as far as career-wise, I can remember taking a job that I should have never taken. I don't know if you guys have ever done that, but you got yourself in this job and you're like, oh my gosh, this was the stupidest thing I've ever said yes to. And, you know, there's, you know, no escape. You're stuck there for until you find another job or until they throw you out on your ear or something like that. And I can remember that in my mid to or late 20s, I guess it was. And it was just terrible. And, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, the most painful memories of all are, you know, over the last 18 years where there have been just pastoral failures on my part, where, you know, I've done something that, that's broken a relationship or someone's done something and I've tried to fix it and it didn't go well or whatever. And uh, they cause pain to people and they cause pain to me and to my family and to our our wider church family. I mean, we, we all have these painful memories that are out there. And the more I thought about this, I'm like, you know, why did God do that? I mean, why, why did God create us in such a way that we actually remember things? I mean, wouldn't it be better to not remember any of the bad stuff? And, you know, and hey, if I can't remember the bad stuff, maybe it's okay to not remember the good stuff. Why would God do that? And why would he make it so that, you know, we can be like 70 years old and remember what happened to us when we were 15? I mean, why does God, you know, design us that way? And, and the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, that perhaps the reason that God has done this, perhaps the reason that God has given us memories is so that when we're in the middle of a crisis or when the wheels are coming off or, or when we're tempted to give up or we're tempted to give out, that we can look back and we can remember what God has done in our life. 
and who he is and, and how he delivered and how he provided for us. And in the process of all of that, in the process of, of, of being faced with something terrible and then remembering how God worked in the past when something terrible happened, we can then have confidence in the future that God is still going to provide in one way or another. And, and we see this through the, the, the pages of Scripture. In Psalm 77 the psalmist writes this, Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? I mean, folks, when you read that, that's a dude in serious despair, right? I mean, he's like, whoa, what has happened here? I mean, my life is really struggling. But look what happens in the next couple verses. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High, and I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate upon your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great among, like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among our people. And you read those things and he looks back. And, and because he's able to look back and because he's able to remember, he's able to have hope. And, and so, you know, I, I thought about this. I'm thinking like, you know, maybe God gave us memories so that God might ultimately give us hope and that, brothers and sisters, is I believe what we're going to see as we continue to work through uh, the biography of Jesus' life that, that the, the gospel writer Luke uh, penned. We're going to be uh, you know, continuing in Luke. Uh, we're, this is the 60th week of, uh, in Luke. We're at chapter 22. We're going to spend this time in verses 14 through 38. So if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app on your phone, if you would make your way to, to Luke chapter 22, and uh, verses 14 to 38, if you, you don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles on the tables around the room, please feel free uh, to grab one of those. And uh, if you are able to stand in honor of God's word, I would humbly ask that, that you might do that as I read to you uh, the entirety of these verses. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table in the the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup is poured out for you. Uh, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the son of man goes as it has been determined but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And, he began to, and they began to question one another which of them it could be who was doing this. 
a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves? You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, there are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now contained within these verses, I believe there are five truths uh, that Jesus intentionally burned into the minds of his disciples just hours before he would be tried and convicted and executed. And they are memories that, that are not just for his disciples, but I believe that, that, that are disciples of the first century, but believe that they're also for, for you and I here in the 21st century. And these truths that have been shared, they take on special meaning because they are some of the last words of a person who's going to be dying. And, and you and I both know that, that when, we are, when we are faced with death, you know, our, our typical conversations are not about the, the Eagles or the Penn State score or the weather or, you know, what's happening in Washington, D.C. No, it's about real things that really, really, really matter. And so it is with Jesus. Jesus is sharing with these fellows things that really, really matter. And what he has done is he has tied these memories to this ordinance that we call the Lord's Supper that has been celebrated by the Christian church for the last 2,000 years. And it's my prayer as we go through this, that, that, that these, these principles, these truths that Jesus uh, shows us that, that we might burn them in our minds. And so that when we regularly take the Lord's Supper, that these things might come to mind because they are important truths that will guide our Christian walk. So here we go. Truth number one, God is worthy of worship in all circumstances. Look at verses 15 to 16. And then Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it, uh, eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. 
You see, Jesus, he understands that he is about to suffer. He knows where things are going. He knows in the next few hours, he is going to be verbally and emotionally abused by the Jewish religious leaders. He knows that he's going to be rejected by the Jewish people who had just welcomed him into Jerusalem just a couple days prior. He knows that he's going to be abandoned by his close friends. He knows that the, that the Romans are going to come along and they're going to physically brutalize him and ultimately they're going to crucify him. And yet, in spite of all of that, in spite of it all, Jesus chooses to celebrate the festival of Passover. He doesn't put it on the side. He doesn't say, hey, there's something more important to go on. He, he decides to be obedient to God. And, and, and as this, this uh, crucifixion is looming before him, he demonstrates that he is obedient to his father's commands. And Psalm 34 it speaks of this kind of attitude. It says this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all of my fears. Those words were written by a young David as he was fleeing for his life from King Saul. He was on the road, he was in the wilderness, he was, he was hiding, he was um, running at night when he couldn't be seen, and, and Saul was, was close on his heels, and David pens these words. He says, I'm going to bless the Lord all the time, even while I'm running for my life, and, and I'm going to have his praise continually in my mouth, even when the, the circumstances of my life are far from perfect. And I will exalt his name together, regardless of how I feel or what I'm faced with. And I wonder, does that actually describe our attitude? We call ourselves fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. But is that how we really live? Do we seek to honor God in every circumstance of our life? Do we worship God when he is not providing in the ways that we think that he should provide? Do we submit ourselves to God when his word calls us to do things and believe things that go completely against the society that we're living in? And when life is completely falling apart, do we run to him or do we run from him? See, Jesus understood that his father in heaven was worthy of worship at all times. And he wanted his disciples to understand that because he knew that as soon as he died, the attention of, of the Jewish religious leaders, they, they were going to shift because they weren't, weren't going to worry about Jesus anymore. Now it's going to shift onto the disciples. And the disciples' lives were going to be difficult and hard, and that many of them were going to die at the hands of the Jews and die at the hands of the Romans. And I have watched this kind of obedience and faithfulness play out in the life of our church family. I have seen things go in a way that people would not have preferred. And I have prayed with people and I have prayed on my own that God would intervene in certain situations in life 
and yet things don't go the way that we had prayed. I've watched young moms and dads pass away, with young, have, leaving behind young kids. And yet the, the widows and the widowers, just a day or two after the funeral, they're in here worshiping with us on a Saturday night or a Sunday morning. And I think to myself, how is that possible? I've been with, with parents whose little babies have died. And rather than going and hiding and where it would be easy to have people not ask questions about, about what, you know, how's your baby doing? Instead, they come into this place and they worship the Lord. I have seen teenagers lose their minds and do all sorts of crazy things. And the parents could have run and hid because they were embarrassed by what the kids were doing. And instead, they're in this place worshiping the Lord. There are women who have been abused and abandoned and betrayed by their spouses. And it would be so easy to just stay in the apartment on a Saturday night or a Sunday morning. That would be the easy thing to do. They wouldn't have to answer any questions. Oh, how's your spouse doing? And instead, they come and they sit in these chairs and they worship the Lord. Why? Because God is worthy of worship at all times and in all circumstances. Truth number two, God is gracious in love. Now, in order to, to fully understand this truth and the next two that I'm going to share with you, uh, we, we've got to do a, a little kind of lesson here uh, about uh, what banquets in the first century looked like. Because the Last Supper was basically, it was a banquet. It was a, a, a Passover celebration. And, and when we think of the Last Supper, this is what we typically think of. This is a, uh, a painting by Leonardo da Vinci, right? And uh, called The Last Supper. It's in a convent in the city of, of Milan. I think it was uh, made in the 15th century, if I'm I'm not mistaken. And, uh, you know, you got the standard picture here. You got the, the big long table. You got Jesus in the, the center of the table. His uh, disciples are on, on either side. And, and this is an, an amazing piece of art painted by an amazing artist. And it is completely wrong. It wasn't like that. Didn't even look close to that. You see, back in those days when they had a banquet, they, they, they used something called a triclinium. And, and this is what a triclinium looks like. It, it basically is a, a U-shaped configuration of tables. And, and there's mats that surround the outside of uh, the tables. And uh, it's low. And so uh, the guests will come. And, and the way that this worked is because, you know, Everybody thought left-handed people were out of their minds, right? So what would happen is, you know, you did everything with your right hand. So, yeah, you would support your body on your, your left arm. You would eat with your right hand. Your feet would be faced outward. And, and what this allowed you to do is because you're positioned in this way, you could actually lean against the body of the person beside you when you wanted to kind of talk to them or when you got a little tired or maybe you want to nuzzle up a little bit. Who knows? It's kind of twisted and weird. 
But that's kind of the way that everything was set up. And that was the way that the, the meals were actually shared. And then in, in the center of the U, that's where the servants would, you know, make sure that they're putting the food and things like that. And so they're not like coming around the, the edge of people like they do in, in our society right now. Uh, but one of the other things that, that you need to know is not only the configuration of, of the table, but, but you need to know that the location of where the person sat mattered because they had specific places where people were supposed to sit. Uh, the host uh, would, would not sit in the center of the U. Instead, he would be out on, on one of the arms of the U, actually the arm of the U that was furthest from the door where the servants would come in. So he's furthest away from where the servants are. And uh, he would sit in not the very first position at the top of the U, but he would sit in the second position uh, from the top of the U. And, and so that's where the host would sit. Now, beside the host to the, the host's right, which would be at the end of the U, at the top of the U, would sit his trusted friend. And then to the left of the host, in the third position from the top of the far part of the U, uh, would sit the guest of honor. And, and then the pecking order would, would go from the guest of honor, and you would start working your way around the U uh, to lesser and lesser and lesser important people until you got all the way at the other end of the U, where the person's sitting kind of directly across the special friend, and that's where the servant would sit. And so that's the configuration. Now the question becomes, who sat where during the Last Supper? And, and believe it or not, the Bible actually gives us some clues that, that allow us to make some pretty educated determinations about who sat where. And, and obviously Jesus is the host of the meal. And so Jesus would have been sitting in position number, number two. And uh, go ahead, you can, you can pull that up. So he would have been sitting in position number two right there. And uh, what we read from John chapter 13, which is another account of the Last Supper, we read these words, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So this guy is reclining at the table at Jesus' side. We know uh, the disciple who Jesus loved is John. You know, he's kind of humble in the writing of the gospel. And it says, so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And so here you have, we can tell that, that, that John is actually sitting to, to Jesus' right because he actually can lean back into Jesus and ask the question. Now this verse also tells us about where Peter was located because Peter had to get John's attention. Peter's sitting across from John. Peter can't talk to Jesus directly because he's not beside Jesus. And so he motions to John. So here we find Peter is most probably sitting in the position of where the servant sits. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a few moments. And then the question becomes is, who's in the seat of the guest of honor? Well, when we go to Matthew's account, what we discover is, uh, is verse 23, Jesus answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. And on these tables, uh, there are common bowls, kind of like salsa at Fiesta Mexico, right? You know, you're hoping that people aren't double dipping, right? You know, and uh, 
So there are these common bowls that are shared between little groups of people. And, and here you have Judas is dipping his bread in the same bowl with Jesus, which means that Judas is actually beside Jesus. But, but because we know Paul is on his right-hand side, Judas implicitly has to be on his left-hand side and puts him in the place of the guest of honor. Now, why in the world would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus, who knew that Judas was going to betray him, put Judas in the position of the guest of honor. And I believe it was to demonstrate that God's love is gracious. You see, God's infinite love extends even to those who oppose him or desire to harm him. And I believe this is like Jesus' final attempt to say, Judas, dude, I really love you. You have been with me from virtually day one. And do you really want to do this? Now, Jesus knew Judas's heart. He knew that Judas was going to do this. But Jesus, he, he's sending a message to Judas. He's sending a message to, to the rest of the disciples that he has this gracious love. So when Jesus says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that who shall ever believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. When he says that God actually loves the world, Jesus means that God loves the world. Now some have tried to take that Greek word that is translated world, which is the Greek word cosmos, and they've attempted to reduce it by, by saying that, that, that God's love only extends to those who are Christians, to those who, who are the elect. And while I understand that this thought process and I, I understand that, that we want to try to systematize our, our theology by, by, by saying that, hey, God's love is only limited to Christians, it doesn't make sense when you look at the entirety of the book of Luke and, 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 and you see, or I'm sorry, the book of John, and you see where the word cosmos is used because what happens here is when John uses the term world in the gospel, it, it refers, and I'm going to quote a fellow by the name of D.A. Carson, who is, who is a reformed scholar that I might add, who, who believes in election. And, and what he says is that he uses this primarily to identify the moral order that is in willful and culpable rebellion against God. So the, 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 what's happening here is, is Jesus is saying God loves this world and all of the people that are in this world who are wicked and who are opposed to him. That God's love extends to all of these people, many like Judas, who will reject God's love in favor of their own sinful desires and their own agenda. And by placing Judas in the position of honor, Jesus is demonstrating that God has this love even for those who will betray him and who hate him. And brothers and sisters, it would do us well to remember that. It would do us well to remember Jesus' deep love towards Judas in the very moments prior to his betrayal. And we would do well to remember that we are called to love our enemies 
and pray for those who persecute us. And, and we are called to love those who hold different political and social and ideological and theological views from us. And we are called to love those who hurt us and reject us and defame us because we are called to emulate our Savior who did just that. And of course, loving them doesn't mean we're always going to agree with them. And loving them doesn't mean we have to affirm their beliefs. And loving them doesn't mean we have to condone what they're doing. But it does mean that as those who claim the name of Christ, that we are to be kind and compassionate to them because we may be the only reflection of the gospel that they will ever see. And brothers and sisters, the division and the strife and the downright hatred that has infected our country should not be. It should not be. And you and I, as fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, should be on the front lines of making a difference, of ratcheting down the rhetoric as we ratchet up the grace-filled proclamation of the gospel. That's our job. Our job is to proclaim the gospel. And we get caught up in all of this craziness. And I say it would do us well to think about the things that we post and the things that we repost and the things that we email and the things that we send. We should think twice before we press that little button with our mouse, click that little button. We should ask ourselves, is this going to draw people to the gospel or away from the gospel? When that little Twitter feed thing goes and, and, and sends some, you know, juicy tidbit about something or someone, we should think twice before we retweet that thing. We should ask ourselves, is what I'm doing moving the gospel of Jesus Christ ahead? Or is it destroying the gospel? Truth number three. God esteems sacrifice and service. Look at verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now, over the 30-plus years of me being a Christian, actually coming up on 40-plus years of me being a Christian, I've often thought, what in the world was wrong with these guys? I mean, why are they constantly having this argument about, about who is the greatest? What is going on here? They are at a banquet now with the God of the universe. He is telling them over and over and over again that he is about to be killed, that he is going to be ripped from their midst, that their world is going to get completely wrecked, and they are arguing over who's the goat, who's the greatest of all times. And they're not asking whether it's LeBron or Michael. That's not the discussion. They're talking about which one of them is the greatest. But you know, 
when you see the seating arrangement, it kind of makes sense. You know, when you know that they were put in a position based on some kind of ranking, it kind of makes sense. And if you're Peter, what's up with this? I'm the first guy you were hanging out with, Jesus. Man, I've been the, the basically, other than you, I've been the leader of this kind of motley crew that we're calling apostles here that you're going to build your church with. And besides, you told me that, that I'm going to be the one upon which you build your church. I mean, Peter's got to be pretty fired up right now. And so I, I would imagine, he's probably the one who instigates this whole thing, right? I can really relate to Peter. Man, I don't like when I feel like I've been wronged. You know, I want to I wanna make it right. And, and so I, I imagine Peter's like, hey, guys, I am the goat. And the reason I'm the goat is none of you clowns walked on water. I'm the one who walked on water. And the guys are looking at each other and like, were you in the same boat that we were in? Didn't you take your eyes off of Jesus and start drowning, dude? I don't think that's real impressive. Peter's like, all right, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give that to you. But hey, most of you guys weren't, weren't with us when Jesus went up onto the mountain, was transfigured, and he was talking there with, with Moses and, 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 and Abraham. You know, I, I was there. I saw that. I'm the eyewitness. I saw that. And guys are like, yeah, and aren't you the one? who thought it was a good idea to build a couple of dirt huts so these guys could live in them? Okay, yeah, that was a bad idea. And then he's like, but yeah, you know something. I'm the first one who recognizes that Jesus is, is actually the Messiah. So I got that going for me, and the guys are looking at him like, yeah, and then right after that, do you remember when Jesus said he's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to be killed? And you said, far be it, and Jesus has to say to you what? Get behind me, Satan. So here they are with Jesus about to go into the cross. And they're trying to figure out who's the greatest of all times of the apostles. Now check out how Jesus responds. This is what he says. And Jesus says to them, the king of the Gentiles, or the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? And that's more of a rhetorical question there. But I am among you as the one who serves. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, my kingdom doesn't operate the way the world's kingdom works. Not how it works. It's actually an upside-down kingdom. It works completely the opposite of the world's kingdom. Because in my kingdom, greatness is measured by who serves. And Jesus was all about sacrificial service. 
And he's the one who, who washed the disciples' feet prior to the Passover meal. Now, who should have done it? It's Peter. Peter's in the seat of the servant. He knows what the job is to be. He's been in these places plenty of times that he knows what happens is the servant is the one who washes the feet. Yet he's not about to bow his knee and wash the dung and the urine and the dirt of the streets off of his friend's feet. And brothers and sisters, this upside-down kingdom where service is where the greatness is, it's how the kingdom of God works. And if we want to be great, if we want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, if we actually want to claim the name of Christ, little Christian, or little Christ, I should say, then we need to be about serving. Jesus said what? I did not come to, to be served, but I came to serve. And, and most of us here in our church family, we get that. The vast majority of us are, are deep in service here at Living Water. And many serve not only here at Living Water, but serve in, in, in other ministries like the Center for Champions or Morningstar or other places. But there are some in our church family who, who simply don't get that. And in a church our size, I should never, ever, ever have to get up here and beg for volunteers. Never. That should never, ever happen. Every Friday afternoon, at 2 o'clock, we have a, about a 15-minute staff meeting, and, and, and the, the staff pulls together a, a couple different uh, forms that we use. There's a, a checklist that we work down through to make sure that, that, you know, all the tables are set up and the chairs have been cleaned, the rooms are set up. You know, I'm an airplane guy. We do checklists, all right? And so our staff, we do checklists. Uh, the other thing that we do is we go down through the worship order to make sure that, you know, the songs are right and everything is set. And then the final thing that we have is we have this big grid. It's on an 11 and a half by, or 8 and a half by 11 sheet of paper. It's a, a big spreadsheet that has every person who's serving in every ministry. And uh, we, we work our way down through that to make sure there are not any holes. And it, invariably, when it comes to, to children's ministry or guardians or the nursery, there's five, six, seven, eight holes. And folks, I, gotta, I just don't get that. I simply don't get that. I don't know how we can claim the name of Christ and know that we are called to serve and how we can possibly come into this room Day in and day out, week in and week out, and receive and never give. Let's just be really honest. Those who come in and take and don't give, I don't question their Christianity at one bit, but I do question their maturity. I question it. 
And we don't go down through the list and see who's serving and who's not serving. We come up here and ask, but I'm telling you, if you claim the name of Jesus and you can't figure out how to make a little bit of time to serve in his name, I really don't think you fully understand what happened on the cross. I really don't think you understand what happened in the upper room. I really think, don't think you understand what happened in the three years of Jesus' life. Because he gave and gave and gave and gave. And I know that's hard and I know that's an admonition, but I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to, to, to put your action where your mouth is. If you claim the name of Jesus, serve in the name of Jesus. And maybe you're connected with some outside ministry and you're serving like crazy. Man, that's great. I, I stand corrected. But if you're not, if it's just come in and come out, you really need to talk to Jesus. You need to spend time with him. Enough of that. Next one. God uses the weak. Look with me at verses 31 to 34. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith might not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Now, we've already talked about Peter, you guys. And, and, and we already have talked about him being the de facto leader of the disciples, and yet Jesus placed him as a servant. And we've already talked about Peter's history of failure. He always seems to start great and end poorly. That's the history of my athletic career, folks. All right? We had the entire Messiah College wrestling team here in the first service. Uh, uh, the, the Bronx brought the, the whole, whole team. And uh, I was telling the guys in the, in the first service, I mean, that is the hit. I start strong, and I, I, I finish, but I don't finish pretty. And I told those guys, one varsity wrestling match, that's all I had in my entire wrestling career, and uh, pinned in 13 seconds. <laughs> Not pretty. Man, I was on my back staring at those lights in no time at all. Goodness gracious. So we know that, that, that Peter's got a history of failure, that he starts great and he ends poorly. But what we just read there, it's a pre precursor to Jesus or, Judah, or Peter's greatest failure. I mean, and, and by repeating his, his name, Simon, Simon, Jesus isn't like, yo, Simon, you're going you're gonna to deny me. It's like, dude, man, you're going to deny me. And Peter's like, hey, there's no way that's going to happen. Man, just not happening. And sure enough, that's what happens. Jesus tells Peter something he doesn't want to hear. I mean, who wants to hear that you're going to, to fall away? You're going to, to fail me. You're going to let me down in my time of need. 
But that's what happens. And we all know what happens next. Peter does just that. He denies Jesus. It's a failure that haunts him for the rest of his life. So what's Jesus' point in this? What is the, the truth that Jesus wants us to remember? And it's this, you guys. God uses the weak. That's how it works. That's who he uses. He uses failures. He uses sinners. He uses losers. He uses people who get pinned in 13 seconds. He uses Jews who, who, who are Jewish leaders who murder Christians. That's who he uses. He uses the hurt and the wounded and the mistreated and the abandoned and the depressed and the grieving and the ones who, who deal with fear and anxiety. He uses the lame and the mute and the deaf and the ones with special needs. You name the weakness. And that's who Jesus uses. And in a world that exalts the Zuckerbergers and the Bezoses and the Musks and the Winfreys and the Trumps and the Obamas and the Schumers and the Pelosi's, all of that seems like foolishness. That's what it seems like. And God knows that. And so he gave us a little reminder of 1 Corinthians of why he uses the weak. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring nothing to the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Why does God build his church with the Peters of the world? Because God gets the glory when he uses the weak. And that brings us to the final truth that we need to remember as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and it's this. The world is hostile to the gospel. Verses 35 to 37. And he said to them, and Jesus said to them, when I sent you out with no money bags or knapsacks or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nope, nothing at all. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, that's the scripture, for what was written about me has its fulfillment. See, this is not the first time that Jesus has said something like this. Back in, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus went out and he sends out the 12 disciples to minister throughout the sounding villages. And uh, he tells them, don't take anything with you. And he does the same thing in chapter 10. He sends out the, the 72, the 12 disciples and 60 others. And he says, you know what? Don't take anything with you. Because they were to rely on the generosity of others. But in this case, 
something has changed. Jesus tells them to, to take a money blag if they have one and to take a knapsack if they have one and to sell their cloak and to, to get a, a concealed weapons permit and to buy a sword and to go into the world. What does all of this mean? It means the world has changed. Things have changed. They, they now are going to go into a world that has proven itself that it is entirely hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as they go out, not just in, in Palestine and Galilee, but as they make their way into North Africa and Asia Minor and Eastern Europe and eventually Western Europe, they are going to encounter resistance. And so they need to be ready. And many times we living as Christians in the 21st century, we look at the things around us and say they can't get any worse. We look at the sexual immorality that is becoming more and more rampant and accepted in our culture. I mean, it gets crazier by the day. You need a program to keep up with all the different ways that sexuality is abused. And we look at the, the violence in our schools and, and the violence in our communities and even the violence in our workplaces. You can't even go to a concert nowadays without going through a metal detector. And we look at the business and the political and the religious leaders exploiting their people and Christians continuing to be persecuted in places like China and slaughtered by groups like ISIS and, and the Taliban. And we say, it can't get any worse Folks, it was worse when Christianity was birthed in the first century. In the first century, it was insanity. The, the, the Romans had pulled away everything. It was a free fall. I mean, they had temples where you went and bought prostitutes, and you had sexual relations in the temple in front of everybody. They sold kids into sex slavery. They executed kids on altars. They fed people to lions. They rejoiced in gladiators cutting each other to bits. They, they flooded the Colosseum and had mock sea battles and watched people get killed. In order to light their gardens, they lit people, dipped people in tar and lit them on fire. That was the birthplace of Christianity, a place filled with immorality and corruption and violence and persecution that we have not yet seen. And folks, it was men like Peter and John and Paul and Timothy and Titus and women like Priscilla and Lydia and Phoebe who made a difference in that insane world because they were committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper here, let us remember these things that Jesus tried to burn into the mind of his disciples so long ago. That God the Father is worthy of worship, that he is gracious in love, that he esteems sacrifice and service, that he uses this, the weak, and that even though this world is hostile to the gospel, that we have been called to be its witnesses.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, as we uh, prepare to take the Lord's Supper, Heavenly Father, Lord God, would you uh, remind us of these principles that Jesus sought to teach his disciples. And Lord, may we be a people who cling hard to the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we be filled with, with grace and love. But Lord, may we be filled with passion. May our hearts break for those who are, who are captured in the grip of the evil one. Lord, may we, may we weep over a world which says that which is good is bad and that which is bad is good. And may, Lord, as we prepare to take these elements, may we reflect upon our lives. May we ask ourselves, am I living out these things that Jesus has called me to do? Am I, am I worshiping him in spite of my circumstances? Am I a person who is gracious in love? Am I someone who realizes and lives out a life of, of sacrifice and selflessness? Am I thankful because he uses the weak? And am I committed and active in sharing the gospel? God, in this time that, that we wait for the elements to be passed, Lord, would you please allow us to consider these things, speak into our hearts, and it's through your son's name we pray. Amen. In a moment, uh, 